Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today are Dr. Mike Heron and his wife, Sandra. We're glad to have the two of y'all with us today. And Sandra, I want you, please, to tell us a little bit about how the two of you met. Mike and I met when we were 13 and 14 years old in high school English class, and mutual friends informed us both that we had the same birthday. Uh-huh. So um, we met that day, and I told him I was born in Turkey for some reason, and he kept calling me a turkey. All oh, my year. word. So, yeah. <laughs> like a 14-year-old, yes. Yes, yes, that's like amazing. a 14-year-old. Yeah. And that so we started dating soon after that. Wow, okay. that's cool. You got over the turkey reference. And yes, decided. I did. He did write it on the back of it. Is a picture though, you know, when you trade pictures, oh, like yeah. Sandra, you turkey, love Mike. <laughs> that is so cute. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever bring that term of endearment out now, Mike? No, but I'm so thankful that she asked me out on that first date, and uh, I continue to say yes. She asked you? You asked him? Um, no, that's a point of contention. It's in my diary, and diaries never lie. We, we, we assume that Jesus will uh, clarify that in New Heavens and the wow. New Earth. Wow, uh-huh. let's go to the end. Yes, right. he asked me to a football game, and I later asked him to an old date party, So, but he forgot about the He forgot about the football game? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in my diary, my third. 13-year-old diary. So and when you I was still 13, have the diary? I still have the diary. Amazing. <laughs> That's a long time for the two of y'all to be together. Wishing and actually uh, what actually happened are two different things. So <laughs> <laughs> you put things in your diary that you wish oh. might happen. Oh, <laughs> uh, women. Wow. We, we write down the tree. <laughs> so funny. All right. Well, let's do our first things first question. And our first things first question for today is when was your first public speaking success? Mike, kick us off. I'll answer that, but first I want to say thank you for inviting me, mm-hmm. um, Amber and Aaron, and then thank you for making sure that the study of the Word of God and its application is central to our women's ministry. I'm very thankful about that. Yeah. I would probably characterize my first speaking success as um, when I ran for student body president in high school, and I think I would consider that my first public speaking success. I told my father that the way to win as uh, the student body office goes is you need to have an interesting speech and particularly it needs to be something that catches people's attention. So my father said, well, you need to tell a joke at the beginning. And he said, if it's a good joke, you'll win. If it's a bad joke, you lose. So I said, well, it needs to be a political joke because I'm running for student body vice president. So he suggested this and this is what joke I told and I did win. I said, George Washington is dead. Abraham Lincoln is dead. And to tell you the truth, I don't feel so well myself. (laughs) And after that, everybody laughed and clapped, and I won. So (laughs) That's all it takes. That's right. Sandra, did you vote for him? Turkey? I'm sure I did. The turkey, yes. That's great. (laughs) That's funny. If only it was that easy every time. Absolutely. Mike, a good joke. Mm -hmm. What about you, Sandra? 
Well, if you define success in public speaking being clapped for, can that be a measure? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. Um, the first time I, I may, it might be the only, I don't know, the only time I was clapped for or first was our campus outreach director had asked me to do a devotion at our staff training. And so I gave a devotion. I was 22 years old, and it was on Proverbs 5, 9. And lest you give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And my point was, the honor and joy of serving Christ when you're young. So everybody clapped for me. How'd you feel when everybody clapped? I was was surprised, I guess. Uh Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. You don't get clapped for at devotions. Yeah. Did you take a bow? I'm just kidding. You can't take a bow after a devotion. You might get struck by lightning. (laughs) I was young and spry. I probably did a herky or something. Oh, my word. Were you a cheerleader? I was. That's so fun. Younger days. Didn't know that. Very fun. Well, I'm still waiting on my moment, Amber. That is not true. (laughs) I've spoken at quite a few things. Student actually ran for some student government stuff. But yeah, I don't know. I never walk away from a moment and be like, wow, I nailed that one. Never? I don't I feel like you so. just nailed that right there. You can count that as your first Thank public you. speaking I'm success. Yeah. <laughs> totally bad. I love it. Okay. Well, when I think of mine, Sandra, it was a youth group devotional as well. We had gone on a youth retreat. We were at the beach. I remember that. And it was a devotion at nighttime. And I don't even remember what I said, but I remember people saying, that was amazing. <laughs> so I thought... <laughs> That was amazing. I mean, I might be amazing, but if I were to go back right now and listen to whatever it was that I said, I know that I would not think that I was amazing. But in my 13-year-old mind, I thought I was amazing in that moment. You know, as I've gone along with various public speaking opportunities and I've grown in my ability to teach the Bible, one thing to me has become abundantly clear. And that's what makes public speaking a success is when you have something important to say, something that makes a difference in your life and in the lives of others, and you're able to communicate the importance of it. And as I've already said at the intro to this podcast, this season, we are talking about the book of John, and it's written by a man named John, a man who Jesus knew, a man who Jesus loved, and a man who knew clearly what he wanted to say, and he said it well. John tells us clearly that the purpose behind the things that he chose to write, he says this at the end of his book, is that these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we are beginning at the beginning, good place to start, of the book of John, and he opens his book with a beautiful prologue. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, poetically express the main themes that John's going to flesh out in the following chapters. He introduces Jesus as the Word, who was with God in the beginning, and who was, is God himself. He introduces him as the light and the life of the world, as the only Son of God, as the giver of life, and as one full of grace and truth. And then John moves out of his poetic prologue and into an historical account of another witness who confessed Jesus as the Christ, John the Baptist. And John, when he's asked by the Jewish people, the religious leaders of the day, to tell them who he, John the Baptist, was, he identifies himself as the one the prophet Isaiah spoke about. He says, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. John the Baptist was baptizing with water for the repentance of sin. 
therefore making straight the way for the Lord's salvation. And baptism, it wasn't a new practice. I thought this was interesting. It was a form of spiritual purification that was going on in different ways at that time. But what was unique about John's baptism is that it was the first time that people were coming to be baptized by someone else. So purification up to that point, you purified yourself. But here you're going to someone else to receive that purification. And so we see that it's a significant and prophetic shift, and it got the attention of the religious leaders of the day. And John tells them, you know, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he goes on to say, I saw the spirit. This is John the Baptist. He says, I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And so there, right at the beginning of John, we see among you stands one that you do not know, that you couldn't know unless he revealed himself to you. And he has come to show you God himself, Jesus Christ, the son of God. So there's so much that is beautiful in this text, so much to appreciate and anticipate as we move further into the book of John. And what I want to know from y'all is what in particular surprised or interested you or captivated you in this passage? Well, on a light note, um, our son Connor's full name is John Connor, and it comes um, from this verse, verses 1-6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We had just found out we were pregnant. We Mm -hmm. were a little bit surprised, and we were sitting in Sunday morning church back in 1996, and the Sunday morning um, New Testament reading was this verse. So I wrote a note to Mike on the bulletin and said, if we have a boy, we need to name him John because God has sent him to us. I love that. So we did that. Um, but second, from John 1.18, um, which says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, and he has explained him. Just for me, when I get foggy or feel uncertain in my relationship with God, it helps me to remember to look at Jesus to explain him for me. For example, I can often feel like I need to perform for God. I need to act a certain way or be a certain way. But Jesus makes it clear it is only his performance that counts. I can get back in perspective and rest in Jesus, who is explaining God continually to me. He's constantly explaining God to me, and it's on his terms. So that was that's one of the things I love from these verses. Well, if you've read the four Gospels, you'll notice quickly that this Gospel, John's Gospel, doesn't begin the same way the other Gospels begin. They begin with the genealogy and the birth of Christ, But John starts at a different place in the beginning. And so that would have been a signal to the Hebrews that were reading this scripture that the creator is still creating, is is this message. And really it sets up, I guess you could say, a key to unlocking the whole book and thinking about this is about the new creation that has come. The second thing is he uses a word to describe the Son of God, logos, the word, which would have been a clue to the Greeks. The Greek mind believed that there was a logos, a key that would unlock the meaning of the hidden meaning of life, that third eye blind, and logos would unlock uh, the secrets to 
not just this life, but the afterlife. So it's fascinating to me that John from the beginning is thinking about the Hebrew and the Greek mind. So it's not surprising that in John 3.16, he would say, God so loved the world. The Hebrew, the Jew would say, wow, not just that God loves the Jew, but then the Greek would say, the God of the universe loves because the Greek mind assumed that the gods were uh, capricious and, you know, temperamental and you had to prove uh, that they should, uh, you should gain their attention. So I think that strikes me that John's thinking about this new creation where God's going to put the world back together again. It makes me think in a much less profound way. I was watching uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Maggie recently. And, you know, when they're at the beaver's house and he's like, have you not heard the prophecies? And so he is calling to mind, like John is calling to mind, like, have you not read the scriptures? Do you not know these prophecies? And he's kind of waking up that Hebrew mind and asking them to remember, this is the kingdom we've been promised. This kingdom is coming. It's come in Jesus. So, and every time, Sandra, like you were talking about, it is so good to be reminded of that. Like you see John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of the Lord is here, or the Lamb of God is here, here in the prologue of John, or the the beginning of John. And then in Matthew 11, he is calling out from prison, like, are you the one? Like you see him doubting. So you see somebody like John the Baptist, that the one calling out from the wilderness, having these very triumphant moments. And then you also see these deep moments of doubt. So you see in John him reassuring us, this is Jesus. I'm writing this down for you to remember. So we talk about what surprised us, um, what's what's feeding us in this uh, scripture. So let's talk about what challenged your beliefs about who Jesus is as the Son of God. John 1.14 is just one of those keys that unlocks uh, so much of the whole Bible. And when it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, that verse is just stunning to me that the God that created all things and sustains and holds all things together, would move into the creation to fix what was broken because of our rebellion. And that word tabernacle is pointing back to this idea of the temple and the idea that God invites us to have a relationship with him. And I think that, you know, that first temple was the Garden of Eden where God tabernacled and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then even when we rebelled, God instructed Moses to to build a tabernacle wherever the people of God wandered or moved, God moved from their midst in the center. And then the the temple and then this Jerusalem, the holy city, that God would dwell. So here we're reminded again that um, that God would come and dwell with us and would take responsibility to fix the problems that we broke. Uh, so that's what was so startling to me once again is that this message is um, it's about God fixing us. But what's interesting also is that God fixes us from the inside out. Most of the time we think all of our problems are fixed when something on the outside is put back together. 
But this text reminds us that God's got to put us back together uh, from the inside out, and and um, we would behold His glory. We would need grace and truth. He's got to change us so that uh, we might fellowship with Him. Hmm. I like how you bring up that temple language. Obviously, that's super important in this passage. And even when John the Baptist is saying, I'm not the true light, the, true, the one who is the true light is coming. And he, the Hebrew people would have known God's presence as the light over the mercy mm-hmm. seat. But now he's saying, no, actually, God is with us. Yeah. And that is just a whole different revelation of his presence than they'd known before. And so, yes, this is a super challenging but profound passage. What did you think, Sandra? I think it's very challenging to think that we have a right to become a child of God. And from one twelve, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That Jesus is the one that gives me the right to be his child. You think about rights, you know, I'm right, or what are our rights as a citizen? And that in in God's economy, um, as I receive Christ, now I have the right to be his child. And it made me think about, you know, when someone loves one of my children, I'm instantly drawn to them because they love my child. And when we love Jesus, you know, God the Father is like, oh, he loves my child. And we're, you know, it draws us all together. So I think it's beautiful to think about receiving him and then having the right to be God's child. Yeah, I like how you brought up the point that we think of our rights and we, you know, stand on our rights, but to stand on the rights that another has given to us and how absolutely necessary that is uh, causes us to believe in Jesus in a very particular way. When I was thinking about this passage and just the emphasis that John puts here and then throughout his book on the fact that this is the son of God, the only son of God, the only one who has seen God's face, who was with God and was God. And it challenges me because I think sometimes in the Old Testament, it's easy for me to delight in the glory of God, just the appearances that he makes. You know, they they seem, well, they are miraculous. They're powerful. They're very God-like. They're not very human-like. And then yet you get to the New Testament and you see God taking on flesh. And I found that sometimes even though I know better, maybe I'm sort of cynical towards the man, Jesus, you know, with this expectation that just like all the rest of us fallen human beings, there's something not quite right. There's something that's going to disappoint. But there's just as that reminder at the beginning, like, I'm, this is God's self-revelation. I don't have to be afraid that Jesus is going to disappoint me. Mm. There's something faulty here or misleading, but that in all of the glorious ways God revealed himself in the Old Testament, this is even more glorious, and I can I can give myself over to it um, without being cynical or without doubting. So that was a challenge for me in this passage. Um, as y'all read through this, we see, particularly in the prologue, the focus is the beauty of Jesus presented. And the, really, the characters that we see in this passage come after verse 18, We see John the Baptist. We see the religious leaders of the day, primarily those two interacting. What in the characters, either John the Baptist or the religious leaders, what stuck out to you about how they interacted with Jesus? And what did that teach you about your own response to him? Well, I can't always help but draw inspiration from John the Baptist on how he knew who he was and who he was not. He said, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. 
I'm not the prophet. He was just a voice. So I feel like my response needs to be right-sized in mirroring that response, which is, of course, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah, but I'm simply a follower with a voice, but Mm -hmm. not to forget that I do have a voice and Mm -hmm. I am a follower, but I'm not the Christ and I'm not Elijah. But he stated it so clearly and eloquently and um, very memorably as well. I am not the Christ. We've heard Lots of sermons on that, I believe, Mm -hmm. but very applicable. Well, the temptation, even then, you have these religious leaders coming out, inquiring of you. Obviously, you are making a big enough stir. You know, I've got my fingers in quotation marks, but that people have, you've sparked curiosity. Something's happening. People are coming to you to be baptized. There is an inauguration of a new thing, and it's tempting to think, yeah, I got to I got a bigger piece of this pie than is really been given to me. But I liked how you had that combination that I know who I'm not and I know who I am. And John the Baptist knew who God, what God had asked him to do. He knew the mission that he had given him and he was absolutely confident and content and yet humble in that. Just the fact that he says, you know, somebody else is coming greater than me and I, I'm not even worthy to try this strap on his sandal and, and yet confident in, in who God made him at the same time. We are introduced also to some that will become his disciples, and John is directing them at some level, but they're inviting their family and others. It actually made me think about my only real assignment as the student body vice president, if you give me time Uh to tell you a quick story. So when you're the student body vice president at our high school, you're in charge of special events, but all the special events are planned except one, so you really just get an opportunity to plan one. And um, two graduates of our high school had just played for the national championship for the University of Alabama. And we were going to have a ceremony where we retired their jerseys and honored them. And I had the idea that I was going to invite the head coach of the University of Alabama, Bear Bryant, to come. And I was going to introduce Paul Bear Bryant. Now, in the state of Alabama, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, Paul Bear Bryant really was like Elvis or the President of the United States, or some people would even, in a sacrilegious way, say that he walked on water. But uh, I did some work, and through several connections, he agreed to come. Wow. So when the event started, the whole high school gymnasium was packed. And Bear Bryant wasn't there. No. And the whole, my whole, uh, my whole self-image, my whole uh, sense of worth as the student body vice president was beginning to <laughs> tank because we were going to have this event and he wasn't there. And so we started, and they sent the, you know, your radio announcer, kind of your Larry Munson in Georgia, the the announcer for the Alabama radio program they sent him and I thought wow that's not even that's not even close to John the Baptist Uh, but they (laughs) sent this uh, radio announcer and he said a few remarks but about the time he was going to introduce the players the doors opened and Bear Bryant started walking in I can hear the door squawking (laughs) and it started in the back and then the next thing you know everyone was standing and clapping and cheering as Bear Bryant walked in to the gymnasium. As I reflect on that, a couple of things just uh, jumped out to me. One is that Bear Bryant needs no introduction. Mm. <laughs> and secondly, 
Bear Bryant can introduce himself. He walked right up to the front. That radio announcer stepped back, and he began to speak. And when I read this chapter, John is giving us that hint. The writer John and John the Baptist, he's saying this one needs no introduction, but he's going to introduce himself. And when he tells those would-be disciples, come and see, it's, it's just amazing to think about that God will, would come and make his home here and allow us to, to know him and to walk with us and to be among us and uh, to give us this permission that you talk about, Sandra, to be his child. I think I was probably most um, interested in how you see, especially the re- religious leaders of that time, looking for a strong savior. And Amber, you kind of referenced this. Like even nowadays, we're looking for that savior who's coming in to lead the political agenda and lead the um, solve all of our problems, our earthly problems. And he's like, no, I'm the same savior that you saw in the Old Testament that tends to the lame, that tends to the blind, that tends to the weak. I'm that kind of deliverer. And I came across this in Psalm 30. And of course, you know this, it's a, a famous passage. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And that it just tells me that if we had that kind of strong, I hesitate to use that word, that sounds wrong because obviously Jesus is our strong deliverer. But if we had that kind of savior that came in and said, I am in charge, I'm coming in judgment, none of us would stand. But he comes in in this humble way and still declaring, I am the Lord in this very full way and saying, my glory is here, my presence is here. And he needs no introduction, much like Bear Bryant. But it is uh, astounding to see how often we trip up just like these religious leaders and that we're looking for the wrong kind of leader. We're looking for the wrong kind of savior. So I think in some ways we can see it's a correct for us to just say, look for look for me in the way that I've, like I think Sandra, you mentioned, this is the way I've declared myself. Like look for me in the way that I've spoken of myself in, in my word and not for your in your preconceived notions of who you think I am or who you think you want me to be. Like I'm the savior and I'm here on my terms. So as we think about the characters and the um, passage of John here in the beginning, how do we begin to um, apply this word? What are the implications of this text to our lives? Well, I was thinking about how important the gospel of John has been to my ministry over the last 30 years, in particular, as we began on staff with Campus Outreach, and mostly my ministry was an evangelistic ministry, and First, I had such a zeal to share the gospel, and I've often felt so frustrated when a person didn't respond by trusting Christ when I presented the gospel. But at some point in a conversation with an an older ministry leader in another ministry, he suggested that I begin to invite people to read the gospel of John with me in an investigative study. And you see Jesus saying, come and see, in many ways, the Gospel of John has probably been read more than any other gospel to introduce Jesus Christ and salvation. And it really transformed my evangelism by thinking in terms of inviting people to have a conversation with Jesus. And then I've noticed here more recently, but also 
I pray that it'll continue to grow is our members more and more are inviting people to come to worship services. To some degree, they are saying, come and see what is changing my life and the bread that I'm experiencing from heaven and the light that I'm receiving and the shepherding that's come to me in this uh, good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so um, I guess some implications I would like to grow is for us to gain the kind of confidence where we can invite others to investigate Jesus the same way the brothers invited their friends and the same way John the Baptist pointed his disciples to Jesus, that we would become a come-and-see church. Mm-hmm. I like that. I do, too. And I like how you, when you read that passage, you realize they just couldn't help themselves, really. Yes. I mean, they were so excited Absolutely. that they wanted to go, that they had to go say. They had to go tell that person closest to them, you've got to come see this. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. That may, reminds me of one of my favorite passages in Acts. I think it's four, where it says, we couldn't help but say mm-hmm. what we've seen. Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah. the same kind of mm-hmm. thing. Absolutely. One sixteen says, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. So in my personal discipleship, I want to be full in Jesus and experience that grace upon grace daily, meaning I don't want to be full of me, and I don't want to experience condemnation every day, but I want to experience grace, freedom. That grace upon grace is just sounds like ocean waves just pounding, just mm-hmm. being pounded by grace. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful way to live, and I would love for these. I'm getting older, so as we continue to age, I'd love for my life to be characterized just by grace upon grace and being full of Him and less and less of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the big takeaway here for me is just how all of the Gospels just draw us into worship. And that's what I hear you guys saying is that when we read a passage like this, we can't help but tremble, but also just be filled with excitement, just that we have a Savior who made himself man that has said, come near to me, come and worship me. And I have come and brought my kingdom. I am making all things new. I am undoing sickness and brokenness and sin and delivering you. I am the deliverer you, you've been waiting for. So I think that when I read a passage like this, it just draws my heart afresh into worship of a worthy Savior. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I'm getting to the place in my life now where if you could see me right now, instead of just hearing me, you'd see that there's actually two sets of reading glasses by um, my (laughs) right hand. I don't know why I have two, but just in case. Hashtag fashion. Hashtag fashion. (laughs) Definitely not. These are $3 readers. But anyway, I am getting to the place in life where occasionally I have to put those readers on. And maybe that started happening in the last six months. And when it first started happening, I really was in denial. You know, I was sitting in the bed reading at night and the book would get further and further away. And I just wouldn't admit that it was because of my eyesight or I couldn't quite type correctly into my phone. And I would be like, why do I keep hitting the, you know, the J instead of the L or whatever it would be. And finally I had to admit, like, I can't see mm-hmm. as well as I used to be able to see. And I've always had incredible vision. So I was like, surely it's not that. Surely it's not that I can't see. And I think when I come to this passage and I recognize the privilege of the fact that God has revealed himself, he's come into the darkness, that without his divine intervention, without his self-revelation, without 
what he shows us about himself, I really would not see. And that I need the spirit to open my eyes in order to be able to see. It just is a reminder to me of the privilege of sight. And then to keep going in, even as I get into John to say, Lord, there's going to be ways that I think I see you, or I think I've always seen you that have been incorrect. And can I be humble enough to say, I can't see on my own, show me. And just the fact that that's what he's about. Come and see. It's it's hopeful. It's not discouraging to me, but it's just a reminder that when I come, expect for him to show me something I wouldn't see otherwise. I love that. And I love that he asks us to come as weak and humble and he will reveal it. Mm-hmm. That's a, a good yes. word, Amber. Mike and Sandra, thank you both for joining us today. Listeners, we hope you'll join us again next week. Let us keep you company while you walk around your neighborhood or doing your workout out at the canal. Amanda LaDuke and Angie Horn will be joining us next week to talk about John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 and what it means to be born again. We hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again a season of pure shining. To cheer it after the rain.